The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. We are actually in Genesis chapter 3. We're looking at verses 20 to 24 in Genesis chapter 3. If you've got a bulletin, the title of the sermon today is Sin and the Mercy of God. Sin and the Mercy of God, Genesis 3, 20 to 24. If you're taking careful note and you've been here a while, you realize that this is the last section in Genesis chapter 3. And I promised about five years ago that I was only going to preach Genesis 1 through 3. or Actually, it was about a few months ago. I, don't, I can't even remember when I started. I think it was before the summer. And we've just been plugging along, studying God's Word in some of the most foundational, important chapters in the Bible, Genesis 1 through 3. And we get to look at the conclusion of chapter 3 today, verses 20 to 24. On your handout there, I broke it up into just four simple points. All around this this theme of mercy, just by way of review, what we've covered so far, we went through the whole first chapter of Genesis, written by Moses, written not in poetry, but in historical narrative in Hebrew. And he told us how the first six days were created by God. And everything that God created. And by the end of the sixth day, God had created everything that we know, and it still exists today. And God completed his creation at day six. There was no evolution that God used. It was just direct fiat creation, as evidenced by the words that Moses used to describe God's creation and the moniker of time there with defining a day, that God did this in a day, morning and evening. And it was perfect. It was sinless. It was without fault. There was no evil in the world or death whatsoever. It was a pristine situation as God had created at the beginning. Then Genesis chapter 2, God zeroed in on day 6 and the culmination of his creation, which was humanity. So it goes into great detail of how God created the first two humans, Adam and Eve, literally, on day 6, and how God performed the first marriage. And that chapter ends with sinlessness and the perfect harmony of man and woman together in marriage, just as God had originally designed that as and together the two of them are one flesh and they reflect the very image of God and have given a purpose by God to reign as his regents on planet earth. That's the purpose of humanity. And then we began chapter three, which we're finishing today. And chapter three starts out showing how Satan, a fallen angel, intervened and interjected himself into the worldly creation that was perfect at the time and Satan went inside of a snake, an animal that God had created, and spoke to Eve and tempted her to sin. And she succumbed to that temptation, ate of the forbidden fruit that God said not to eat, gave it to her husband. He also ate. That really happened. It was a historical event. God had warned Adam before that, that you can eat from all of these beautiful trees in the Garden of Eden. You will be sustained by me, a good God. But you can't eat from that one tree. And that was the one tree that Satan was successful in tempting Adam and Eve to eat. And as soon as they ate that, they disobeyed God. They committed the first sin. And with that came punishment and consequences from a holy God, God the creator. God is perfect. He is sinless. He's the creator of all people. And in his very nature, he can't tolerate sin because he's perfectly holy, holy, holy. He's a just God. He must punish sin. And so he did punish Adam and Eve. And we've been walking through the consequences or the punishments of sin that God literally did to Adam and Eve the last couple of weeks. 
and we've been going through that starting at verse 14. We conclude that in verse 24. So from 14 to 24 are the consequences that God the Creator gave the first two humans, Adam and Eve. We are living with those consequences to this day. Like I said, this is a historical event. It actually happened. And these consequences or punishments from God have continued all throughout thousands of years of history and still occur and exist today. We live in a cursed life, a cursed earth under the judgment of God that started back here with Adam and Eve. And not only did God judge Adam and Eve because of their participation in, in the sin, God also judged that snake, the animal, talked about that, and he also judged Satan himself. And so we've been looking at that. So we're going to wrap up with the rest of the consequences. Verses 14 to 19 was all God's wrath and his fury because he hates sin and he's punishing sin and he's telling each of the participants, because you did this, Here's your consequence, Mr. Snake. Because you did this, here's your consequence, Satan. Because you did this, Eve, here's your consequence. And Adam, because you did this, here are your consequences that affect actually all of humanity. But in the middle of all those consequences, God gave grace. He gave hope. He gave actually what is known as the first gospel, the proto-evangelium, or that's Latin, the first gospel specifically spoken by God is in verse 15 of Genesis 3. In the midst of all the wrath and judgment from God, God gives hope to humanity, to sinners. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a promise that when God said, okay, Eve, um, you're going to be at war with Satan. And there's going to be a descendant who comes from you, Eve. He, masculine. So a man is going to come from your loins. Eve, you're going to, eventually, one of your descendants is going to give birth to a man. And that man is going to crush Satan's head. In other words, he will be the Savior. His name is Jesus. One of our sermons, we literally looked at 12 points of why the seed is Jesus proven by the whole Bible. That was just a couple of weeks ago. Jesus is in Genesis. And there he was, and the whole Bible is about Jesus, this coming seed, this blessed Savior who's going to override all these curses. He's going to override all this fury and wrath from a holy God. He's going to be the Savior. He's going to rescue sinners. God promised, in the day that you eat, you shall surely die. The day you sin, you shall die. That's God's decree that he issued in Genesis 2. He reiterates it all throughout history in the Bible. It's very clear. It's a spiritual principle. It is inviolable. The consequences of sin is death from God's point of view. Where there is sin, there must be bloodshed. Where there's sin, God gets furious. He gets angry. He must punish. He must pour out his wrath. And there's only one thing that appeases this holy God in his attitude towards sin. It is shed blood, sacrifice, atoning, intervention by a life. That's all here. Enigmatic or latent. But still, the details are there in Genesis 3.15 that despite all this sin and this wrath and punishment, God is going to give hope. He gives mercy. He gives forgiveness. So here's God who told Adam and Eve, particularly Adam, in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. And within the same two chapters, we see, yes, God's going to follow through on that consequence because he hates sin. But God is also a gracious, merciful, loving, patient, forgiving God. It's his very nature. And so he's going to judge Adam, yet he's going to provide salvation for Adam. And not only for Adam, but for the human race, a way to be saved. That's awesome. So in the midst of all this judgment, bad news, and sin, there is hope, there is mercy. Hence the title of the sermon today, Sin and the Mercy of God. And so these verses, verses 20 to 24, if you're not reading carefully, 
you might miss it. But if you're reading carefully in context, verses 20 to 24 in Genesis 3, these pages literally just bleed with mercy. They bleed with hope. They bleed with the grace of God. And the rest of the Bible really is a commentary on this grace of God that he has to offer and wants to extend to sinful humanity. That's why Jesus came into the world. Jesus Christ came to seek and to save those who are lost. There's good news in this passage. Let's go ahead and look at it. I'll just read verses 20 to 20. By the way, if you were not, we had some married folks out last week. If you are uh, married and you weren't here last week, can you just raise your hand real quick? Okay, put your hand down. Man, you missed it. Because we looked at Genesis uh, 3, 16 tonight. That's all about marriage. It describes your marriage. I could write a book on the biography of your marriage, and I don't even need to know anything about it. Just write what was in here. The sad news is God cursed marriage. He cursed the wife. He cursed Adam, the husband. It was very sad. But the curse that God put on marriage and on on their relationship are still the, the main problems in marriages today. So that's all the bad news. The good news is in the rest of the Bible, most specifically in the New Testament, that those problems and the curse that God put on marriage relationships ultimately can be overcome with the grace of God through Jesus Christ and knowing him. So we are not without hope. So after we looked at the curse on marriage, Adam and Eve, and even planet Earth and why it's all messed up now, uh, we transition to verse 20 to 24. Let me go ahead and read it. Be looking for the sin and the judgment. At the same time, be looking for hints or even overt examples of the mercy of God and hope through this passage. God curses all. All four participants, he finished cursing Adam, and then it goes on saying this. Now the man, Adam, after the curse, now the man or Adam called his wife's name Eve. Called her Eve because she was the mother of all the living. For literally the man, Adam called his wife Chava, Chava. That's the Hebrew word. It's very specific. It's related to the word life. That's what he named her. Verse 21, and the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and God clothed them. Verse 22, then the Lord God said, behold. Now, the Lord God said to himself, this is God the Father, Jesus, and the Spirit of God talking among themselves. The Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in one specific way. What is that? Knowing good and evil. And now, lest he stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And then God didn't finish his sentence. I wonder what he was going to say. Verse 23. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So God drove the man out. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of of life. Let's go ahead and look at the sin and the mercy in this passage intended by God really to bless us all. First is point number one. That is despite Adam and Eve's sin and the punishment of death, God shows mercy to Adam and Eve and even the whole human race. Point number one, God is merciful to the woman, specifically endowing her with life. God is merciful to the woman. God just cursed the woman. In verse 16, 
God warned the woman really through Adam in Genesis 2:18. In the moment you eat, you shall surely die. That was the death sentence given by God. Then the curse for that in verse 16. And then after judgment, after the warning, then after the literal consequence and punishment, the woman Eve is she's ex, she's given a blessing. She's given grace. She's given mercy. God didn't snuff her out on the spot. He could have. Oh, you sinned. Boom. You're you're wiped out from the existence, your existence on planet Earth. God did that on occasion where somebody sinned. And because he's sovereign. He might decide to kill somebody on the spot. He did that to Ananias and Sapphira for their sin in Acts chapter five. He did that to Uzzah, the guy carrying the ark inappropriately. He did that to folks in the flood who didn't repent. So there are times and occasions where God does that. God could have done that with Eve. He would have been justified in doing so. He promised he would do that she would die. But instead of snuffing her out, grace is extended to Eve in an amazing way. Because verse 20 says, Now the man called his wife's name Eve, which literally has to do with the one who gives life, the giver of life, because uh, she was the mother of all the living. This is amazing. This is really an act of faith. On Adam's part, here you actually see Adam exercising faith. What's faith? Faith is actually responding positively and appropriating and believing God's word. Whenever God says something and you believe it, that's an act of faith. That's exercising faith. God says something, you actually, oh, okay, I believe that. And then you act on it. That's a supernatural act. So whenever you respond positively to the word of God, divine revelation, that is faith. And, and Adam exercises faith. So this is a gift from God, a work from God. He, he didn't have to in his own human ability. He probably couldn't have responded in faith. He could have responded differently. Oh, God said, when I ate, I'm going to die. So I'm just going to die. We're going to get snuffed out. We're going to, into non-existence, whatever that is. We're going to die, whatever that is. Adam had never seen death before. God warns him about death, and he'd never seen death before. And then God pours out this curse on him and all, all of planet Earth. So he could have been overwhelmed with just anxiety and hopelessness and everything else. But yet he's hanging on to that promise in Genesis 3.15 of this one who would come from the loins of his wife, who would crush the work of Satan, who got us into this mess in the first place. And he exercises faith in God's word. That's why it says now, verse 20, now Adam exercises faith. He believes the word of God. He believes the reality and the literal fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. He literally believes that his wife, who's a sinner, who deserves to die, is not going to be snuffed out. She's going to go on, and her life is going to prolong, be prolonged. They're going to have children together, and one of their offspring is going to end up being the Messiah, the Savior, the one who crushes Satan. That's the big picture. Adam acknowledges that. He acknowledges the promise of God to the seed of the woman, and that's why in verse 20, now the man called his wife's name Eve. She is the mother of all the living. So based on what you're saying, God, despite all these consequences... And your wrath being poured out based on what you're saying is there's hope, there's mercy, there's grace yet to come from the loins of my wife, who's a sinner, that the Messiah would come through her. She's going to give life. That's right, Adam. So he names her Eve. Hebrew word for life. Why? Because she was the mother of all the living. And that is literally true. Every single person today in this church building came from the loins of Eve. From her DNA. We didn't evolve from monkeys or chimpanzees. She's the mother of all life. Where did all human beings come from? It says right here. She's the mother of all living. All living, all living people. All living humans. 
And Adam believed that. So he's trusting in the mercy of God. This is the second time that Adam gave his wife a name. The first time, remember on wedding day? He looked at her and said, whoa, man. And she was perfect. And he named her Woman, Isha. And that word Isha, Woman, the name meant something. First of all, he was the leader of the relationship. God made him the head. You shall lead and be the leader of your relationship. And therefore, you have that authority over your wife to name her. And God delegated that ability to name his wife. He was the, the leader and the head of his relationship, even though they were one flesh. So he named her woman. And that meant perfect compliment. You are, the per, you are God's gift to me. You are my perfect compliment. You fulfill me. We are a team together. We reflect the image of God together. We fulfill God's mandate together. Now he gives her a new name. Now when, God, when Adam named the woman the first time, the name had to do with the fact that she found her source and origin in Adam. She came from Adam. Here he's doing kind of the opposite or the counterpart or the converse. He's recognizing that even though you have origin, even though I'm the source of your life, Eve, you're going to be the source of every other human being that comes into existence from now on. That's amazing. Every, the greatest men in history all came from a, a greater woman, their mommy. It's by God's design. And that's what Adam is acknowledging here. That's what he believes. So he names his wife. He's exercising leadership. He was passive, and that got them into sin. Now he's exercising leadership immediately, giving her a name, an appropriate name, a God-ordained name, a name that shows fulfillment of prophecy yet to come because she was the mother of all the living, and that's where all human beings come from. Where did all human beings come from? They came from Eve. It says so right here. God tells us very clearly she's the mother of all the living. That is the grace of God. The grace of God. Paul makes a comment about this in the book of Timothy. He acknowledges that, yes, the man is the head. He's the leader of the relationship. He is to be the leader in the local church. He's the leader in the family. He's the leader in the marriage. That doesn't mean that the woman is inferior at all. God has given her great uh, esteem in terms of her role as well. And that's through childbearing. And that takes us back to this passage. All human beings, the entire human race came from a woman. That is a great privilege and a great glory. And Paul esteems women for that very truth. So this is the mercy of God. Who else is he merciful to? In addition to the sinful woman, that's point number two. God is merciful to the couple as a whole. Verse 21, atoning their sin. Verse 21, and the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. This, this verse is just incredibly profound. And if you didn't have the rest of the Bible, you wouldn't see this. But because we have the whole Bible and the New Testament and the fullest revelation of all the Lord Jesus Christ, that gives the fullness of the meaning that's going on here and who God is and what he requires. The Lord God, first notice the Lord God. Remember chapter 1 was just God, 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 capital G, Elohim, Elohim, Elohim. The generic name for God, even a name that pagans used. It's a legitimate name, but it's just the creator God, generic God. This is the Lord God. So Moses adds Yahweh to the name. Yahweh God. Yahweh, that's God's personal name. That's God's covenant name. That's God's intimate name. That's the saving God. This isn't the act of just creation in the beginning. This is God the Savior at work in atoning sin for sinners. So he's called the Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God. Very specific. 
So the covenant covenant keeping, promise keeping, loving, merciful, Savior Yahweh is doing an act of grace here. What did he do? He didn't snuff them out. He preserves the married couple together. To fulfill his promise of Genesis 3.15, verse 21. And the Lord God made garments of skin. So Adam and Eve had become sinners by the act of their first sin. And the Bible makes it clear that God, who is a holy God, can't tolerate sin. And no sinner can directly approach God as a sinner. God can't tolerate that. He cannot have presence. He can't have sin in his presence. But we're all now born sinners because of Adam and Eve and their sin. But Adam and Eve now, they are sinners and they can no their fellowship with God is now broken. There's going to be a barrier in between now their relationship with God. They don't have direct access with God anymore because he is holy. They are not. They are sinful to the core. Their relationship has been damaged. And if God doesn't intervene, they can't recover from this broken relationship. And so God immediately intervenes. God, I believe God is intervening here and taking action through the work of salvation on their behalf. God is the Savior. God initiates salvation with sinners. We don't initiate it on our own. We are dead in our sins. It takes the mercy and the grace and the initiative of God to initiate salvation. And he does that through the revelation of his truth, through the work of his spirit. And that's what he's doing here. He's given Adam revelation. Adam has responded positively and believed. And now God begins to follow through on the act of salvation of this sinful couple. And no sinner can go to a holy God without a covering for their sin. Our sin needs to be covered. It needs to be smothered. It needs to be hidden. It needs to be washed away before we can go into the presence of a holy God. This is graphically seen when you go on into the tabernacle scenes in the book of Exodus where God is telling Moses, okay, you need to build a tabernacle. You need to make sacrifices there. And not anybody can go and approach God with the sacrifices. Only one person can. It is the priest. And the priest can't just go there willy-nilly. The priest actually has to have appropriate garments. He needs legitimate covering. And God begins to go in great detail as to the tunics and the robes that go from head, literally, to toe to cover the sinner before he tries to access a holy God on behalf of sinners. Genesis chapter, or it's Exodus chapter 20, I think 26, there were stairs that went up to the altar to sacrifice, and God even got so specific. And you are not allowed, priest, to walk up in your tunic, up the stairs to the sacrifice with your private parts exposed. That's literally what it says. It needs to be covered, everything. So God was exacting in his requirement that sinners cannot approach a holy God. They must be covered. Their sin must be hidden. Their sin must be drowned away. And God's made it clear all throughout Scripture, very clearly and explicitly, what he requires. There's only one thing that covers our sin to the satisfaction or the appeasement of God, and that is death. That is shed blood. That's it. God requires death on behalf of sin. That's, all, that's the only solution, the only thing that appeases God. So we see that from literally from Genesis to Revelation. And so that's what God is laying down here as the precedent for all of human history, providing the only legitimate way that human beings who are sinful can relate to God, their creator, who is holy. And as they must be covered, their sin must be covered, their sin must be covered with the blood from death. And God in his grace 
through most of history, chose a substitute to do that on behalf of the sinner. So instead of killing you, sinner, I'm going to kill somebody in your place. Instead of killing you, which you deserve, I'm going to kill an animal in your place. I'm going to kill an innocent animal who didn't sin on your behalf so you can be forgiven. So that I can overlook your sin. So that your sin will be covered. I'm going to kill this beautiful, cute little goat on your behalf. Literally. And so that's what God is laying down here. So the Lord God made garments of skin. So the word for skin used 20 times or less in the Old Testament. It always means skin, mostly animal skin, sometimes human skin. It refers to uh, goat's skin in the book of Genesis. Animal skin. Bull skin in the book of Exodus. Porpoise skin in the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. God made garments of skin. God made literally, better translation, a coat of skin, tunics of skin. Same word used of the priest that had his body covered from head to toe with his long tunic. A robe. God made a robe. This isn't a bikini that you might see in some pictures. This is a robe from here down past the knees and even to the ankles. That's how it was with the priests. This is priestly language. By the way, it is the Lord God whom so God took initiative. He made garments out of animal skin. That's literally what it means. How do you make garments out of animal skin? You kill animals. That's what you do. So imagine this. God told Adam and Eve before they sinned in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. And so Adam, Eve probably wasn't created yet. And so when she was created and they had their wedding and their honeymoon. Oh, by the way, dear, uh, our creator, Elohim, he, he told me something I should probably tell you. Uh, we're not supposed to eat from that tree, even though it looks really delicious. And you know what he said? God said, if we eat from it, we're going to die that day. I can just imagine the conversation that Adam and Eve had because they don't even know what death is. They lack knowledge. And that's what Satan promised them. If you do this, you'll have knowledge that you don't have. Because they didn't know what death was. They'd never seen it in action. And so here it is. Here's a graphic illustration that they're learning for the first time in their life. God said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then God slaughters and kills innocent animals, probably in their presence. And they see animals getting slaughtered. They see blood being shed. Here the definition is illustrated for them. This is it. This is death. Remember I told you the consequence of sin is death. This is what it looks like. It's brutal. It's painful. It's bloody. You don't recover. How shocking that must have been for them. And also, God is going to keep his promise. Yeah, you are experiencing death because the death sentence is literally in your DNA starting this day. And also, you're going to experience spiritual death because you're going to be separated and booted out of this garden in just a second. But you're also going to face physical death because the clock is now ticking. And this is what it looks like. See these animals I just slaughtered? That's going to happen to you. So they learned what death was, the severity of it that day. God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve, he, he clothed them. What they tried to do earlier, they, were, they took fig leaves and they were covering themselves. That was the work of man. It was inadequate. It was insufficient. It didn't shed blood. It didn't appease God. It didn't atone their sin. He could still see their sinfulness. It was the work of their hands, not the grace of God. They're trying to reach God and run away and hide from sin on their own terms. God would have none of that. He must initiate salvation and he does and it's only one way it is through shed blood and here it's by way of substitution because that is the grace of god this is amazing this is the doctrine of atonement right here atone means to cover that's what it means 
covered. When Noah put pitch in the ark to fill in the holes, that's the word atonement. He atoned all those holes in the ark. So this is a prefigurement of the gospel and the Lord Jesus to come. Amazing. So God is gracious to this couple. Let's go on to point number three. God is merciful to the couple by atoning their sin, covering their sin, initiating salvation, killing a substitute in their place. This would be the pattern for all of human history from that point forward. And then number three, verse 22 and 23, God is merciful to humanity, making salvation possible. Verse 22, then the Lord God said, behold, behold, this is an important truth. The man, including Adam and Eve, have become like one of us. In in one new way did they become like God. Before Adam and Eve sinned, they only knew one thing, and that was the goodness of God. That's it. They didn't know what evil was. They didn't know what death was. They didn't know it intellectually. They didn't know it experientially. But they learned that. So now they have new information. They learned of the knowledge of good and evil. That's how they are now like God. Before they sinned, they didn't have the knowledge of good and evil because they didn't have the knowledge of evil. So ironically, they actually kind of, wow, Satan was right. If we eat this, we'll gain the knowledge of good and evil. But it's not all that it was cracked up to be. So the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in that he now knows good and evil. And that's not a good thing because that's true of every sinner, all of us. We, we know because we're sinners, we know experientially evil. That was not true of Adam and Eve before they sinned. But we know that now as sinners. There's a huge problem with that as finite sinners. Without the grace of God, there's a problem with the fact that we know good and evil. The problem is we don't have the power to choose the good on our own. That's really bad. We feel helpless. And we don't have the power to resist the evil. That's why it's so bad. God knows good and evil, and he has the, the power to always choose the good and to not choose the evil. We don't have that power. We're helpless. We're at the mercy of evil that we know and experience. So this is not a good thing. And so now lest he, man, Adam and Eve, stretch out their hand and take also and eat from the tree of life, what that means is they are now in sin. They, while they are in their physical body in sin, if they then ate from the tree of life, they would live forever in their sin. That's what it means. They would be preserved in perpetuity in a sinful, unredeemable body. There was no plan of salvation available to them. They would not be able to appropriate or get a resurrection sinless body in the future. That's what this means. So here's the grace of God. We've got to protect Adam and Eve. They're sinful. They're in their sin. They're in a dying body. We can't let them eat from the tree of life that will make them immortal. And that's what God says. And take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And then God just stops the sentence in the middle of the sentence. That's a unique literary feature here. We don't know if uh, that's all the information God gave Moses or just God wanted Moses to write it down, but he, he didn't finish, God didn't finish his thought in verse 22. It is a literary feature. We even have it in English where you start a sentence and you don't finish, but you know by implication what the result is. Moses does this two times, right here and then also in uh, Exodus 32, 32, I think, where God doesn't, or somebody doesn't finish a sentence. It's kind of like when a parent says to their child, 
you better get back in that bedroom or else. And then you don't finish the sentence. But yeah, we know. And that's what's going on here. So God's being gracious. Therefore, the Lord God sent Adam and Eve out of the garden, sent them out of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So you're not going to be able to just eat from the trees anymore. It's not going to be a leisurely life anymore. It's going to be toilsome, painful, burdensome. You're going to blood, sweat, and tears. You're going to eke out an existence by blood, sweat, and tears for the rest of your life. You're going to do it outside the garden. That's a consequence of sin. So he kicks them out of the garden. So it is an act of judgment. And at the same time, it's an act of mercy and grace, preserving them from being preserved in their sinfulness for all eternity without hope of salvation and redemption. This is the mercy of God, the grace of God. So God has to cut off the access of the tree of life. And that did make salvation possible because Adam and Eve were booted out and allowed to physically die then and be saved and then die, then the promise of resurrection, the fullness of salvation could be theirs by grace through faith, ultimately revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ who died for sin, was buried and then rose again from the dead in a glorious resurrection body. And anybody that believes in his gospel will someday also have that glorious resurrection body that will live for all eternity. It will be physical, the resurrection body. It will be sinless, no sin whatsoever. So when you have your resurrection body, you will be in heaven. You have full volition. You'll be able to make decisions, not coerced. They'll be your own decisions in heaven in your glorified body, but you will never choose evil. You will never choose sin. You will always choose the good. That's that's amazing to think about. You and I, we're not going to be robots in heaven but that's god's ideal resurrection glory that's part of the gospel so god sends them out to preserve a a path of salvation for generations yet to come and then number four god is merciful to uh the saints for their future. So number three was God is merciful to humanity, making salvation possible. And then number four, God is merciful to the saints, planning for their future. So I think it's more specific. God makes a plan of salvation for humanity. And in that salvation, God saves people throughout history. And those people, once they're saved, they're called saints. They're called holy ones. If you're a Christian today, you're called a saint, according to Scripture. There are religions that say, no, you don't come, become a saint until you die and a miracle is done in your name and it's in the future and you have to be canonized by the church. That's not a saint. In the Bible, it's clear. Saint means holy one. And it happens when you get saved in this life. So if you're seven years old and you get saved, you are a saint as a seven-year-old. I don't care what your parents say, you are Saint Elisa or whatever it is. Maybe you don't act like a saint all the time. But anyway, it's the grace of God that makes you a saint. So God is merciful to the saints planning for their future salvation. And what I mean by this is the culmination of our salvation, the fulfillment of our salvation. If you're a Christian now, you're saved now from your sin. You're saved now legally in terms of your position. You've been adopted spiritually into the family of God. You still have sin living in you. You still mess up, I mess up. But we have salvation legally from God. But the fullness of our salvation is yet future when God saves our body too, resurrection body, eliminates sin, New glorious body, physical body, perfect body, like Christ's body. It's awesome. It is yet to come. It happens in heaven. It happens in the new heavens and the new earth. That's why we read 
Revelation 21 earlier. So let's look at it. Verse 24. So God drove the man. First, he said he's going to it said he sent him out. And now it's he drove the man. That's a harsh term. God drove the Canaanites, Canaanites out of the promised land. God drove his enemies out of his presence. That's what he's doing here. So that's kind of like Adam and Eve. They're enemies in their sin. They're enemies. He drove them out. You don't deserve to be here. You can't be in the Garden of Eden. You can't be a steward. You're not worthy. You don't deserve it. You have sin. So that's why he drives them out. It's a harsh word. So you get this balance of grace and judgment. So God drove Adam and Eve out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, at the doorway or the gate of the Garden of Eden, it was a real place, a real garden with a real entrance that could be, you could go in, come out. God kicks him out, doesn't want him to go in there. So he doesn't have access to the tree of life. So he's not preserved in his sin for all eternity. So he kicks him out. And then God guards the gate of Eden that was literally someplace on planet Earth. In the Middle East. And what did he guard guard it with? Well, at the Garden of Eden, God stationed or God caused to camp out at. So that's a permanent presence. And the word for stationed is where we get our word Shekinah from, the Hebrew word. What did he station there in glory? These shining beams are called the cherubim. What are these? Cherubim are like, it's cherub, singular. And the seraphs were angels and the cherubs were angels. There was more than one cherub because they're cherubim. I am is plural, so if there's two or we don't know how many, maybe it was two cherubs, these literal beings from heaven. They're amazing, created by God. They can't die. They're sinless. They're awesome. They're powerful. And God stationed these cherubs to guard. They're more powerful than humans are. They're keeping Satan out. They're keeping human beings out. They're keeping Adam and Eve out. They can't go into this Garden of Eden, these two cherubs. They have wings. They're living creatures. They're described in Scripture in several different places. In addition to the two cherubs, at least that are there, there's a flaming sword, a heavenly sword, a bright sword, a majestic sword, flaming fire, the fire of heaven, absolutely glorious, which turned every direction, a sword, a sword does one thing, it's for killing and chopping heads off. So that's how God is guarding, stationing this entrance to the Garden of Eden. This is literal, turning every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. What God is keeping them from eating the tree of life. This is an act of his grace. So that in the future, God, we don't know what happened to the Garden of Eden. If God, you know, guarded it for a while and then took it away, or maybe at the time of the flood, just took it away. We do know that he preserved the tree of life because the tree of life still exists. So go to Revelation chapter two real quick. So what happened to the tree of life? Well, it still exists. It was created by God. It's for humanity's good. If you eat it, it gives you immortal life and it is going to happen. It's literal. It's yet future. And it is for the saints. It's for God's people. They're the only ones privileged to eat from this tree of life. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, God is talking to the church of Ephesus. And he gives them warnings and he gives them promises. And he says, if you are remain faithful, Christian, every Christian who's faithful in this life gets a promise from God in heaven. Rewards in heaven. All the promises in Revelation 2 and 3 are rewards in the future in heaven heaven here's one of the rewards that you'll get so if you're a christian here today here's something you're going to get from god in the future in heaven verse 7 he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches which includes christians in the churches to the one who overcomes that's a christian i jesus will grant here it is to eat from the tree of life so that's what we're going to get to do adam and eve weren't allowed to do that on earth in their sin we will be allowed to do it in heaven the tree of life where is it? Well, it's in the paradise of God. Where's the paradise of God? Second Corinthians says paradise is where Jesus is now in the third heaven. That's where the tree of life is. And then flip to Revelation 22 real quick. 
So the new heavens and the new earth, chapter 22, verse 1, and God showed me a river of the water of life. This is what that new heaven will look like. There's a water of life, not just a tree of life, a water of life that maybe we get to drink from. It's clear. It is crystal. Coming from the throne of God and the Lamb, verse 2, Revelation 22, in the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life. There it is. Bearing 12 kinds of fruit. We don't know if it's 12 fruit at the same time or a, a different fruit each month. So the fruit of the month club. 12 kinds of fruit, 12 months. Tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. It is perpetual. And the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. And if you are a believer, you will get to eat from the tree of life. That is the promise of the Lord Jesus in verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes, who are forgiven of sin because they know Jesus, that they may have the right to eat from the tree of life and live forever. The promise of eternal life. Absolutely amazing. All through the grace and the mercy of God despite our sin. Well, let me close with this, that those of us who are sinners and know we're sinners and have turned from our sin to the one and only blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus. We know that we have a struggle that continues in this life. But we have the grace and the mercy of God to sustain us. And one of our anchors is our future with Christ for all eternity in heaven where it will be perfect. And we have all these blessed privileges, including, including the tree of life. And maybe there's some here who don't know Jesus yet for whatever reason. Maybe you know you don't know Jesus. Maybe you're not sure if you know Jesus personally. The more you hear truth, the more you're going to be challenged about that dilemma you have in your soul. Because God uses the Spirit to convict you about that, to, to lead you to himself. Take it seriously. Don't reject it. Don't minimize it. Ask God for help. Pray to him. Talk to him. Ask him for more revelation and insight. Ask him for help to save you from your sin. Ask him to help you to believe, like the man who said in the Bible, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. If you pray that way and you are sincere, God will answer that prayer. He'll change you. He will save you. He will forgive you. He'll adopt you into his family, all for his glory. With that, let's go ahead and pray to the Father. Father, we thank you for our time together. Again, the, the privilege to study your word together. Uh, we thank you for the truth that we were able and privileged to read through Genesis 1 through 3, so foundational. And today... Thank you for the opportunity to see your mercy. You're a holy God. You must punish sin, and yet you're merciful to sinners who don't deserve your grace. So, and we thank you that this is all fulfilled ultimately in Jesus Christ, who came down as the Lamb of God to give his life, to die and have his blood shed as an atonement for sin on behalf of sinners who believe in him that our sin might be covered by the blood of Jesus so that we can have direct access to your presence as a holy God. Thank you for that great truth and reality. We give you all the glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650 650- six three zero 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 nine